Hey there, I'm Justin Zyduck. I'm Jim Cannon, and you're listening to The Iron Age of Comics, a critical reevaluation of comic books from about 1985 to 2000. The mid-1990s were rough for the Avengers. Uh, today we live in a world where the name Avengers is pretty reliable box office gold, but in a pre-MCU world, the main Avengers book and the uh, related family of characters and titles were perceived as kind of out of step in a market dominated by X-Men and Image Comics. This led to some increasingly desperate attempts to get readers' attention. Iron Man was killed and replaced with a teenage version of himself from an alternate timeline. A dying Captain America relied on powered armor for survival. Thor lost his powers and put on a costume covered in leather straps and spikes. Hmm. And the Wasp mutated into an insectoid hybrid form, I guess. Um, this was the era of bloated epics like Operation Galactic Storm, extreme rebrands like Forceworks, and confusing and controversial crossovers like The Crossing. Perhaps worst of all, the Avengers started wearing bomber jackets. The horror! <laughs> Gasp! The horror! You know, Rogue puts on a jacket and everybody likes it. The Black Knight does it and it's the worst thing you ever saw. Right? Well, I mean... <laughs> To be fair, Rogue is a good character. <laughs> We're going to have uh, Dane Whitman stands after us now. <laughs> All three Let of you. Let them come. Let them come. <laughs> uh, now that we've alienated that subset. <laughs> uh, They've got a sense of humor about it. <laughs> so by 1996, the decision was made to cancel the entire Avengers line and outsource the characters to Rob Liefeld and Jim Lee. But improbably, one Avengers-related title at this time was actually seeing an uptick in sales and getting some industry buzz. And it's still considered, I think, by many fans of the character, uh, one of that character's all-time runs today. And, like, not many Marvel comics from 1995 can say that, I don't think. You don't say. <laughs> <laughs> So if you haven't guessed, we're talking about Mark Wade and Ron Garney's first run on Captain America, focused on the initial storyline that kicked it off, Operation Rebirth, which ran from issues 444 to 448. So as always, we start with our own history with the work in question to get some context and perspective. Uh, Jim, when did you first read this? Um, It is hard to say, to be entirely honest. I have these issues in trade, at least most of them. But I honestly had no memory of ever reading them. <laughs> the Indiki on the trade tells me that it was published in 1996, and I think I purchased it soon after publication. I do have a memory of doing so on the recommendation of Wizard, mm -hmm. which was touting this run that was abruptly cut short by the Heroes Reborn initiative. I must have enjoyed this at the time because I do have a clear memory of being excited that Wade and Garney were returning to the Cap title when Heroes Reborn was over and done. Mm -hmm. This was also during my real turn away from being a Marvel zombie to being a, a giant DC, too. I missed all those changes to the Avengers you just mentioned, for example, and even to this day have no idea what The Crossing is about 
about? <laughs> I, I, I don't know that anybody does. <laughs> I just hear that those two words said in the most dire tones mm-hmm. from time to time, but but no actual explanation. Uh, and, and ultimately, I, I have to admit, reading these issues for the podcast was like reading it for the first time. I, I literally had no memory of, of the contents of this, this book. All right. Well, uh, for me, this is a run that has some personal significance because it really hooked me at a time that I was starting to lose interest in comics. Not like... Not like outgrowing them, but sort of growing apart, especially at Marvel. Like I never got into the grim and grittifying, the edgier costume redesigns, all that kind of stuff that I was uh, talking about and that you missed out on uh, entirely. Yeah. So you'd have, you know, Aunt May dies, Wolverine gets the adamantium pulled out of his body, Colossus joins up with Magneto. Like it's, it was kind of a bummer, man. So, <laughs> so I started paying just less attention to what was happening, you know, not like a full blown, I quit, but just, you know, I'm going to do other activities uh, with my <laughs> time. But then out of the blue one day, and it might've actually been at like a Walmart or something because this was 30 plus years ago when they still had comics at Walmart. <laughs> uh, so like, yeah, not even a comic book store. I saw this issue of Captain America and it was very uh, striking. It looked modern and stylish, uh, but it had Cap in his classic costume doing Captain America kind of things. And I even found the fact that the title on the cover said Steve Rogers, comma, Captain America, kind of comforting, you know, like, hey, it's the, it's the same guy, right? It's not, <laughs> it's not a teenage version of Captain America. It's not. Or a cyborg version right. or <laughs> an evil killer robot version. Exactly. So I picked it up and I liked it and I bought the surrounding issues and I was, you know, back on the horse and then it got canceled. So we will will talk about that in due time. But first let's talk about Mark Wade, who's truly one of the most influential creators of the Iron Age. Uh, Wade came into the industry via the Amazing Heroes fanzine in the mid eighties and got a job as an editor at DC Comics in 1987. Um, among other things that he edited was Morrison's Doom Patrol. So um, he transitioned to freelance writing, working on the ill-fated Impact Comics line from DC that licensed the MLJ uh, Archie line of superheroes. And in 1992, editor Brian Augustin took a chance and gave him a shot on The Flash, which revolutionized the character and made Wade's name as a top superhero writer. Through a complete coincidence, then, I have some of Wade's earliest comics because I was an avid reader of The Comet, several issues of which Wade wrote. Mm -hmm. So I know that his run on The Flash would probably be the more orthodox place to start talking about Wade and his career on this podcast. But we're still discussing how we want to tackle that run and we want to get it right, you know, because that's kind kind of a big deal. So we're going to take this opportunity to get our opening thoughts on the man and his work out there instead. Do you want to start us off there? Sure. I would say I am a Mark Wade fan. I'm not a devoted disciple or anything. I, I don't obsessively pick up everything he does like I do for Christopher Priest, but I trust Wade to produce entertaining comics the way I trust few other creators. I would say that I've had a deeper connection to the works of people like Grant Morrison or Priest, that I've had higher highs with folks like Frank Miller or Walt Simonson, but I also can't think of a single Wade project I've read that I haven't fully enjoyed. Mm-hmm. He's known for his encyclopedic knowledge of comics, particularly the Silver Age, 
but I don't think he's all that precious about that sort of thing. He gave us the first return of Barry Allen, and it was very different, and I would argue more creatively satisfying than Flash Rebirth. Hmm. Yeah, so Wade is one of my favorite comic writers of all time. You know, like top five. Uh, I don't have the list off the top of my head, but he would probably, I'm sure, be in there. Um, I think he's the only creator that I've ever sent an email to, which is both a function of my esteem and there was only like a brief window in the 1990s where somebody like Wade, who was a comic writer and a somewhat public figure, would actually put their personal email address out there. That was an AOL address, wasn't it? It was probably like a CompuServe or something. (laughs) (laughs) You know? It was, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure he's not at Mark Wade one, two, three, four or whatever it was, <laughs> whatever it was back in 1999. Um, so obviously he has that Mr. Silver Age reputation, right? And he's the guy who knows Clark Kent's canonical social security number. And he'll go to conventions and sort of rattle off all the trivia that you like. But I do think it really does him a disservice to label him as just the retro guy. He doesn't do pastiche in his comics, and it's not just putting his own personal nostalgia back into circulation. Um, I think what you mentioned about Return of Barry Allen, like that was very much, you know, deliberately saying, we're not going to do what we did when I was a kid, you know? Well, at the same time, when he and Morrison were brainstorming how to revive or or rejuvenate Superman, they kind of threw out all the Man of Steel stuff to get back to the stuff they read as a, as kids. So yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's, it's a, he's not immune to that lure. I I would say, but I, but I do think that like when he does something like that, right? He interrogates what he likes about Silver and Bronze Age comics and asks, "What is it that I like about this beyond just my personal childhood memories? You know, like what is it that's speaking to me? What do I think is valuable in this interpretation versus?" you know, what somebody like John Byrne did. And is there a way to justify that or look at it from a different angle so that it makes sense or resonates in the context of a, you know, like a modern post-Watchmen superhero comic book where we expect more nuanced characters and a a less naive way of looking at the world. But I do think that he's able to do that kind of work in a way that's more thoughtful than just, you know, take the Silver Age character and add a whole lot of sex and violence on top. (laughs) Yeah, he definitely is not guilty of that sort of thing. Yeah. We we won't point fingers at the creators who are. (laughs) Not in this episode, because we're... But we'll have to eventually. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I got where you're coming from. So Wade came over to Marvel in the mid-90s to work on a Deadpool miniseries and the ongoing X-Men titles circa Age of Apocalypse and Onslaught. And that's not a group of characters that we tend to associate uh, him with. And he said that it wasn't a great fit, but he got something that's a little more suited to his sensibility. Let's say when he was tapped to replace the late Mark Grunewald on Captain America after his legendary 10 year run. So Grunewald is one of my favorite comics personalities, writer, editor, merry prankster of the eighties Marvel bullpen. (laughs) Uh, Part of this affection is because he's from Oshkosh, Wisconsin, where I have relatives and actually lived for a few years. Um, down the street, apparently, from where he lived at one point, if a uh, address in an old letter column is to be believed. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's not like I would have ever seen him. But uh, So a deep dive on Gru's cap is sort of in the same boat as Wade's Flash, where it's in our wheelhouse. We're discussing how we want to tackle that. But very briefly, I think it's fair to say that it's a run of ups and downs, right? 
Uh, there's not wrong with Cap Wolf, okay? I'm going <laughs> to say that right away. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. No. I, I can't. I, this is radio, so you can't see that I, I didn't even try to have a straight face while saying that. But, um... <laughs> There are not a lot of 10-year runs in comics. The only one similar I can think of off the top of my head was Claremont's 17 years with the X-Men. Mm-hmm. And like Claremont, Gru was maybe on cap a little too long, and the last few years were not as strong as the earlier ones. But that said, I think Gru's cap is, quote-unquote, my cap, like the mm-hmm. Captain America that I think of when I think of Captain America, um, you know, for whatever that's worth. But I, I agree. His run is, is prime iron age of, of comics material. And, and we will have to do once we figure out how we're going to approach these longer runs yeah. and, and not just, just these, these short kind of arcs or, or chunks. But, um, yeah, big fan of Gru. Uh, so I will say that at one point in the late nineties, I, was a regular member on a particular comic book message board. Um, I won't tell you which one, but I did go by the screen name of Cap Wolf. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Because I thought that was I thought I thought I thought that was a cool thing to call yourself, regardless of uh, whatever. But um, yeah, please nobody look that up. Uh, nobody go to the internet archive and. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you've just opened a huge can of worms, my friend. Uh, I'm sure that I had some uh, mean things to say about Howard Mackey Spider-Man, so let, let's not your that opinion. Yes, your opinions from three decades ago will condemn you. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, you know, I I think that Mark Greenwald is somebody who was such a good fit for late '80s Marvel and what it was possible to do with a long run on a character back then, and even what fans wanted out of a long run like that. And I just think like, as the nineties progressed, he sort of fell out of what that zeitgeist was, you know, on, on sort of all accounts. And that I think that's, um, weight has always been a little easier to adjust to that sort of, um, changing tide, but also, uh, unfortunately we'll never know what Mark Greenwald would have done, you know, later on in the nineties and, and past that. At the tail end of Greenwald's run, uh, Cap's body was deteriorating from, let's just call it like a weird comic book sci-fi medical condition brought on by problems with the super soldier serum. It would be pointless to try to describe this in medically accurate terms, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, the in-story reason for the exoskeleton is that he actually just needs it to move around because his body is falling apart. In Grunewald's last issue, Cap spends what he believes to be the final day of his life putting his affairs in order with, uh, with friends and enemies alike, and then retiring to his room in Avengers Mansion, where the team finds empty armor on his bed, but no body. Oh my gosh. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, that's, that's an appropriate mythic art, uh, an appropriately mythic end to Gru's run, and it leaves it in a place where you can think of that as the last Captain America story, you know, in your personal canon if you want. But of course, they put out another issue the next month. So um, let's talk about what happens there. Cool. Uh, so Wade's first issue, which is uh, 444, is more of a prelude to this arc, and that's not included in the trade that you have, right? Correct. All right. So um, in this issue, Cap is missing, presumed dead, and the Avengers have to defuse a scenario in which some bad guys holding hostages are demanding that Captain America appear. Now, the real purpose of this issue is to define Captain America through his absence. 
there's a federal agent who's in charge of the situation, and he basically takes the position of, what's the big deal about Captain America? You know, he's, <laughs> he, he's just, no, he's just no, a normal guy. My dad liked him, you know, that kind of <laughs> thing. Which, oh. prom- yeah, which prompts the Avengers to go, you know, how dare you, sir? <laughs> they, they, there's a really funny panel where they sort of all dogpile on him in a almost like Looney Tunes cartoonish looming over him fashion. And, you know, they go on to talk about Captain America's courage, the example that he set, how even without superpowers, he was, you know, the greatest of them. That's kind of a bit of a stretch, isn't it? Like, who in the Marvel Universe is unaware that Cap leaves the Avengers and saves the entire world at least once a month? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it's it's the 90s, right? This guy was probably hoping Ghost Rider would show up. Or, <laughs> <laughs> or the Punisher? Yeah. He's a big, uh, yeah. he's a big Night Watch stan. So. <laughs> he's the one. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, th- I think it's pretty clear what Mark Waid is, is trying to do here. It's his first issue. It's a potential jumping on point. And he knows that, you know, we're in the time where all the coolest superheroes have whips and chains and claws. <laughs> there are accusations that Cap is maybe a little old fashioned or, no. <laughs> you know, or even just underpowered, right. Compared to, you know, the, the cosmic powered demon powered superheroes of the, of the time. <laughs> <laughs> so like to try to disprove this, he puts all these Cap is lame ideas in the mouth of a straw man character. And when the skeptic is converted by the story's end, you, the jaded, cynical 90s comics reader, should be as well. To be honest about a run that I like, this issue is pretty heavy-handed, I think. Um, it's of a piece with Aquaman stories that try too hard to, you know, prove that he's really tough and cool, you guys. Um, <laughs> you know, and, like, I already like Captain America. Right? I think he's cool. I think Aquaman is cool, too. So, like, you don't really need to put all his work in to convince me. I've already spent $3 on this comic book. <laughs> why... <laughs> Why are you telling me something I already know? Yeah, I know. That's frustrating. <laughs> yeah. And like Wade will use a similar trick in his celebrated first issue of Fantastic Four in the aughts where you have this outside observer giving you a fresh perspective on the Fantastic Four, but it's a little less antagonistic in there. Um, it's not like the guy is defeated in his in his doubt. You know, it's just sort of like he looks at it and goes like, oh, okay, I never thought about it this way. And like that is an effective tool, I guess, for a reader, because it holds up a sign that says, like, here's how you, the reader, should think about these characters. But it is a little on the nose. It's uh, telling and not showing, which is a a, co- a common complaint that you've uh, had on this podcast before. Yeah, it's, I think that's a double sin in comics, the visual medium, where you can always show and tell at the same time. Mm-hmm. So on to the main story. Cap wakes up in a laboratory encased in a block of ice which he busts out of in a symbolic rebirth. It turns out that the Red Skull arranged for a former S.H.I.E.L.D. agent, Sharon Carter, to abduct Cap's dying body from Avengers Mansion and cure his degeneration with a blood transfusion from the Skull, who has a healthy and stable version of the super soldier serum in his own veins. But why, you might ask, would the Skull save the life of his most hated enemy? You know, the guy that he tries to kill probably every six months or so. Uh... Well, dig this. At some point, the skull trapped Hitler's mind inside a cosmic cube. Yeah, it, it's it's true. <laughs> the consciousness of Adolf Hitler is alive in the present day and inside of a weird glowing box. This is a premise you're just going to have to accept 
before <laughs> well, so that we can I'm, go on. It has helped somewhat by the precedent set in previous Marvel comics that a version of Hitler survived the war and returned as the character known as the hate monger. So this this is building on established Marvel continuity and canon as outlandish as it may seem at first blush. Um, these are the facts. Yeah. <laughs> if you ever try to find out, if you ever try to look into um, what happened to Adolf Hitler in the Marvel universe, it gets into sort of a ship of Theseus thing about, like, <laughs> well, if his body was burnt, but his mind is alive and these clone bodies. Yeah. So, yep. It's all nonsense, but study your history books. Um, <laughs> But how this is relevant here is that neo-Nazis, or the uh, the cube cult... That's cube with a K, so you know they're evil. <laughs> and German. <laughs> <laughs> they've, uh, they've seized an army base containing the cube and are trying to activate its reality warping powers to reshape the world in Hitler's image. So like, you know, the, the famous, what if the Nazis won World War II scenario. And that might not sound like the worst reality for the Red Skull to live in, Right except that he knows that Hitler's going to be pretty steamed at the guy who stuffed his mind inside of a cube for all those years. So the skull decides that his most prudent course of action is to revive Captain America to help him stop the cult and prevent Hitler from coming to power in the modern day. So that's like the, the big picture, right? Them forced to be on the same side. It's um, an unusual Marvel team up in a way. It's the classic first they fight, then they gain respect. <laughs> Of course, it doesn't actually play out that way. Yeah, they, they still pretty much hate each other, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it would be a different story if, if yeah. know, with, with Cap going, that Red Skull's not such a bad guy after all. Down, <laughs> that doesn't happen. You no, know, he's don't, got don't some worry good people. points. Hail Hydra. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so first up, thoughts on how this whole Cap is dying plotline gets resolved. Because according to Wade, Greenwald didn't like come in and tell him, by the way, here's how I was planning to end this, or like here's a back door that I worked into the story to begin with. The idea of using the Red Skull's blood because the Red Skull's current body was actually cloned from Captain America himself, but later disfigured by his own dust of death, is the the two second summary. Uh, that <laughs> idea that idea was something that like Wade noticed and picked up on, and that kind of problem solving is one of the things that Wade is really known for, I think. Uh, he says in interviews, actually, he said that he plots blindly. Like he will write a cliffhanger to an issue without knowing how they're going to get out of it the next month. And his, his thought is that like, well, if I don't know how they're going to, how they're going to figure this out, the reader will probably also be stumped. Um, and then like, he knows the characters and situations and power sets and all that stuff so well that he can usually get himself out of that hole, you know? Yeah. Wade is particularly gifted at coming up with that third option thing that every good hero succeeds at you know when the villain places the hero in a situation where they have to choose between two bad outcomes and the hero comes up with a third option and saves the day that's that's wade's expertise yeah definitely to say um you know screw your trolley problem i'm gonna <laughs> yeah i've got telekinesis bam yeah. you know <laughs> or whatever but um so given that right do you buy necessarily that the red skull like the red skull would bring captain america back to life because looking at it critically i sort of go back and forth you know because it makes sense like as an immediate justification if you need it for the story you know like the idea that captain america will owe him one but on reflection i think that like you know the red skull could call the avengers 
or any other superhero or even the army or the FBI. And I, I think it would all be quite happy to help out with like <laughs> Nazis are going to take over the world, you know, like they're not. I think that's an easy cause for people to get on board with is to stop yeah, Nazis. Probably. So, um, but then like the more that I think about it, and maybe this is just me searching for meaning in something that I like, maybe making this like a private matter helps the skull save face. Like this is kind of embarrassing. So like if he just calls up the Avengers, you know, and says like, oh, hey, I, I trapped Hitler's mind in a cube and now this is coming back to bite me. Maybe that's embarrassing. Whereas if it's Captain America, you can play this as like, ah, oh, yes, my old enemy. You're, 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 you're falling into my web of schemes. Well, number one, it's impossible for the red skull to say face, but um, he's ugly. Um, (laughs) yeah, sorry. (laughs) Um, you know, we do find out that there are layers to skulls plan. So he does have Mm -hmm. a reason behind all this, but I think it's a ridiculous premise on the faces of it, that the red skull would turn to his most hated foe for help in his time of need is preposterous. Like he has crossbones and machine Smith on his payroll. And he's also convinced of his own superiority, despite the many times Steve has put a lie to that. Mm. But (laughs) this is superhero comics. And there is a certain amount of leeway on these kinds of premises. You know, we all want Steve Rogers back in the red, white, and blue. And this makes sense enough on the surface, at least. I think it just falls apart immediately if you think about it for longer than a few seconds, <laughs> which f- fairly this this story moves at at such a pace that you're not left with a couple seconds to think about it. Right. But obviously, the way that we go through these things, we kind of have to. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the Hitler cube thing, I realize that that sounds pretty outrageous and out of nowhere, out of context. But that's because there's no footnotes in the story explaining that this comes from an issue of Supervillain Team-Up by Peter B. Gillis in the 1970s. And it's not just like a weird, crazy premise that Wade came up with out of whole cloth, you know, just to, just to justify this. Because that, when I first read this, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> what? Really? Yeah. Like, oh, there's Hitler in, Hitler is in a cube. That's, that's what we're going with. I just with, assumed like, that was that was set up, and maybe I've been trained by by decades of Marvel comics, but I just figured, of course, that happened at some point. <laughs> <laughs> and like Supervillain Team Up, I don't know that anybody read that at the time much. So this is, this is this is a deep this is a deep pull, you know. I wouldn't have known what issue it would. I would assume it happened in either Fantastic Four because hate mongers of FF villain or cap because <laughs> red skulls involved <laughs> i never would have thought supervillain team up but i absolutely figured oh yeah I, obviously this happened at some point. <laughs> that makes perfect sense oh my god i'm broken <laughs> i understand the logic of this uh. uh but yeah i mean this is wade right having done his homework like he's so mm-hmm. good at and looking to pass stories to not just go what's broken that i need to fix that's not what he's doing here. He's looking at something that was set up in, you know, I guess kind of a throwaway issue from the seventies and going, well, like here's something that we can work with, right? Here's something that we can, we can play with. Here's something that's additive to the Marvel universe and not just litigating old stories. Right. And this enables the story hook here, which multiple characters point out to Captain America is that Captain America was designed to stop Hitler, right? Like that's his, the entire reason for the creation of Captain America in theory. But since Cap was frozen before the end of the war, 
he never actually got to do that outside of, you know, punching Hitler on the cover of issue one. What do you think of that angle? Because like when I first read this, I thought that was interesting to go to. Um, you know, not that I imagine that Steve Rogers is like sitting around Avengers Mansion, you know, on some nights just sort of jittering in his chair, like, oh, I, dang it, I, I missed my shot. I really wanted, to, really mad <laughs> that I, I, I missed my opportunity to personally deliver Adolf Hitler to Allied headquarters. I guess is the the idea here, but, um, you know, that's something that I hadn't really considered, considered before is that Captain America in canon is supposed to be, you know, out of active duty, basically, uh, frozen during the end of World War II. So there is sort of an aspect of unfinished business around Captain America, maybe. I think this is the sort of thing that Mark Waid has always been really good at is seeing the angle that's been there all along and that somehow nobody's really exploited. Yeah, I... Honestly, I think this is a kind of a weak idea. Mm-hmm. Because like you say, Cap isn't sitting around lamenting the fact that he never got to beat up Hitler. He's lamenting the fact that he let Bucky die horribly in flames and torment. <laughs> and and since Nazi Germany was defeated and the war ended, I don't think Steve is the kind of guy to have too many sleepless nights about how the war ended. <laughs> right. Um. It does make sense to me that the Red Skull would use this as a carrot to motivate Cap to go along with the Skull's plan, because I I do believe that's how the Skull's mind works. But Cap? Nah. The idea that Cap must feel like he has to fulfill his purpose or his destiny, I don't think any of those things matter to Steve Rogers, but I think Mm -hmm. that is a kind of a thing that matters to the Red Skull. Like, his mind would fixate on that sort of thing and assume that everyone else feels the same way because, you know, being a megalomaniacal supervillain and a narcissist, like, he he can't... He has no empathy or understanding of how other people might approach a situation. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, so the idea of unfinished business... We've got Doctor Doom and Magneto still at large at this point in Marvel continuity, and it's not like Cap is beating himself up over not taking those guys down. So, like, I really think this is the Red Skull's reasoning, and as such, it's immediately suspect. And I noticed Mm. that, like, Cap doesn't really react to that bait Mm. in the comic. It's just something the Red Skull, like, brings up and needles him with occasionally. But, like you said, (laughs) yeah... It convince people to fight Hitler. No, you don't need to convince Captain <laughs> America to fight Hitler. I mean, you point him at evil, and he's going to do his damnedest to put a stop to it. So it's not like the Red Skull has to try hard to convince him to pitch in. <laughs> I just don't think... I don't think Cap is buying it. I think he's just, all right, this is the situation. I'm going to play my cards close to my chest because it's the Red Skull I have to team up with. <laughs> it's... So Sharon Carter's inclusion in the storyline and her becoming a supporting character in subsequent story arcs and runs, that's something that Mark Waid has said that he's particularly proud of in coming up with. Because like her deal as a character is that she was a supporting character in the Lee Kirby Captain America stories in Tales of Suspense. She was Agent 13 of S.H.I.E.L.D. And they meet and they fall in love and he wants her to quit S.H.I.E.L.D. because, you know... That kind of paternalistic concern is how a Stanley story works. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's just a, a sign of the times. But yeah, uh, she seemingly gets killed off in a 1979 issue of Captain America 
but Cap doesn't see her die. He only sees like a this supposed death on videotape. And of course, the first rule of comic book death is don't trust it if there's no body, right? Yeah, but like I guess 15 years before anybody brought her back, that's, I mean, that's practically official. <laughs> well, right. I mean, that's definitely one of the longer tenured deaths in <laughs> comic book. And I don't know that anybody was like clamoring for this particular character to to come back, but something that like, you know, Mark Wade seems to have thought this is a, a good thing to explore. And so yeah. when uh, he brings her back here, she says that she faked her death to go on a top secret mission. And this is a mission that apparently went south in some undefined way. And she had to survive an unfriendly territory in deep cover by any means necessary. And we get the implication that like a lot of bad stuff went down here, you know? So when she returns, she's changed by this horrific experience, and she's not the uncomplicated love interest that Steve used to know in 1960s comics. She has this attitude of, I've seen some ugly things, and now I know that like this is the way that the real world works. And not only that, but she's infiltrated the Cube cult organization and somehow contacted the Red Skull and is now working with him? Yeah, there's a lot of somehow going on here with like, <laughs> like, yeah. like you, you, again, that's, that's that, that's that breakneck pace where like you're reading it. You're right. Like, okay. I'm, I'm all up to sp- I'm all up to speed. And then you like look back and I'm like, well, who, what, when did you, <laughs> how, who was the, <laughs> why, why would you, yeah. And so, <laughs> so like that, you know, in and of itself is like good writing to some degree to like figure out like exactly how much can we put on you and not make you question until like. That I think that like, Alfred Hitchcock referred to this, and I'm probably this has probably like been discredited that it's a thing that's a, a quoted to him or something. But like the icebox problem that like you watch the movie and you're like totally fine, and then when you're going to the icebox for you know some leftover cold chicken or something, you're like, well, wait, wait a minute, <laughs> but it doesn't matter because because the movie's over now, so like it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, fair. Yeah, I, that happens. I do that a lot. <laughs> like, so, totally entertained while I'm watching the thing that I'm watching, and then. Yeah, I'm leaving the theater and going, wait, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> Surely, no. Uh, yeah, so so my big theory here about this dynamic that Wade reintroduces into the book, I think that Wade is Sharon Carter to some degree. I'm going to explain, I'm going to get into that. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> You're on thin ice, counselor, but... <laughs> <laughs> I always am. Proceed. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that, like... Despite Wade's reputation, right, as Mr. Silver Age, Mr. Old Fashioned, he's not a sunny optimist, I don't think. There's like a real sarcastic streak to a lot of his character dialogue, and that feels like something that's sort of coming to him naturally, you know? So I think that like what characters like Captain America or, you know, when he writes Superman, when he gets that opportunity, is it sort of challenges a kind of knee-jerk cynicism that like the world is a crummy place. But what if we could look to the superhero as a beacon of hope in the face of all that, you know? I mean, t- t- tell me okay, tell me if you think that I'm taking this into creepy, you know, I'm his <laughs> biggest fan. I understand him. I'm going to speak for him. <laughs> you know, territory. Let, let, me, let, me, let me know if he has to uh, take out a restraining order or something. But, I, you know, I feel that, like, a certain worldview emerges from a deep reading of Wade's stuff. Well... <sighs> <laughs> I I don't know. Um, I presume you've read more interviews with Wade than I have and have a better idea of the kind of person he is. 
but I I'm wary of assigning too much biographical assumptions to a writer based on the fiction that they write. Uh, this is a guy who gave us the cap never loses meme. Like no superhero ever loses. Like th- that is their job. That's what they do. That's why they exist. They exist to win. But thanks to Wade, it's essentially been codified that Cap cannot lose. And that's not cynical thinking at all. Okay, let me let me put it another way without trying to assign a personality profile to a guy that I've never met. I often feel that there's like a dialogue that he puts on the page between idealism and like a disappointed realism. And like there's a gap between the world that we aspire to and the world that we live in. So like, I think this is something that comes up in kingdom come where like, this is a bad situation, but you have idealists working out the best that they can do in the situation. I think that you have this in his flash run where you have sort of the difference between the silver age ideal of Barry Allen and then the messy post crisis reality that Wally West has to operate in. It's also why I think that he writes such a good Lois Lane when he gets the chance, because like, I think that's a character who like is outwardly kind of cynical and seen it all and world weary, but like Superman kind of punctures that and tells you like, it's okay to believe that, you know, there could be something finer, right? Like the, the, the flash Gordon <laughs> stands for, this man stands for something finer, right? That, that moment always gets me. And I feel like that is exactly like the heart of the cynical characters in Wade's thing of like, they want to put on this thing of, the world can't touch me because the world sucks. And then you have people like Captain America, like Superman who come along and show you a, a, not even a more optimistic path, but like what makes Cap heroic, right? Is that he can beat the cynicism that you throw at him. Okay. I'm convinced. I mean, once you've mentioned the Flash Gordon like that, that's my (laughs) kryptonite, man. You got me there. Okay. I thought that might might work. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there's something finer than Ming's law. Oh man. Yeah, there, were, right. there, 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 are, there are times when I have legitimately teared up at that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, well, you know what? Bonus podcast is the DVD commentary for flash Gordon. I think. Oh my God. You want to hear me <laughs> gush like a fanboy for two hours? Good Lord. No one wants uh, that, <laughs> but I'll do it. I will absolutely do it. <laughs> Right in, folks. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I mean, so like the thing that I think complicates the ideological conflict that Wade wants to play out here is that because Cap and Sharon also have this romantic history, you kind of question, and I don't know if we're supposed to, but I, I kind of question how much of her attitude towards him is her truly being like a hard-nosed realist, and this is a legitimate conflict of how we see the world. And how much is just her being steamed at her ex, you know, and like taking her shots where she can. So when she picks it as idealism, like, is she actually being just petty looking to put him down? You know, it, it risks making her look like she's just adopting a pose. And this is just romantic tension rather than an actual philosophical debate that we're supposed to be having here. Well, the other danger is just making her seem like a contrarian shrew. I think Wade mostly avoids this, given the revised backstory and the 15-year gap between appearances. Sharon is essentially a brand new character with the same name. It's somewhat surprising in a world with Cosmic Cube's life model 
decoys, shape-shifting aliens, and dimensional tourists, the Steve just accepts the story on the face of it. <laughs> oh, well. Uh, Sharon <laughs> does skirt the line here. Cap has to be tricked into working with Red Skull. But as previously mentioned, when the story begins, she's already partnered with him. And for some reason, this is largely ignored. She spends most of the story needling Steve and giving him a hard time and inexplicably helping the Red Skull. At a climactic moment, she does hand the stolen cube to Cap, but even by the end of the book, I'm not entirely sure why Cap trusts her. Yeah, I'm not even sure having 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 read this, so... <laughs> um. <laughs> So to skirt this issue and, and, and move on, um, maybe we should talk about Ron Garney. For yes, let's, because we've we spent a lot of time about Wade. Yeah. So we're talking all about, you know, Wade's decisions here and stuff. But like at the time, I think I remember Wade saying in interviews that like, you know, he credited Garney's art for being what, what made people pay attention to the book in the first place. I think this was Garney's highest profile gig to this point. Um, he had done some G.I. Joe, some Moon Knight, uh, Darkstalkers, which I, for, I forget what that was. And Ghostwriter. Um, he goes on to have a pretty consistently in-demand career. He did runs on Hulk, on JLA. He did um, Amazing Spider-Man during Civil War era, I believe. Uh, Daredevil. Uh, he's, he's now doing the Berserker comic with Keanu Reeves, or it's styled like Berserker. <laughs> however, no however, however you are supposed to pronounce that. Um, <laughs> if you say it backwards, Keanu Reeves goes back to the fifth dimension, I guess. Um, <laughs> Begins aging. <laughs> so the, the 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 first issues that Garney turns in here, I feel like he's not especially distinctive. Like not bad, certainly, but you know, sort of uh, of its time. Let's say like it's it's very scratchy, it's gritty, there's a lot of cross hatching, it's kind of Andy Kubertish, um, and part of that might just be a function of different inkers doing different things. Um, there are a couple of different inkers on this storyline, and I feel like it's sort of a useful way of looking at, like, well, what does an inker actually do? Because I think you can tell a difference between issue to issue. Um, but I do feel like as it goes on, whether that's him, whether it's inkers, I feel like his style becomes a little more fluid and open. Kubernetes is entirely warranted. Did Garney, do we know, did Garney learn his craft at the Kubert Art School or... Uh, he, 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 he did, he did not. He went to, um, I don't remember what school he went. I actually looked this up, but he yeah. went to a, uh, just like a, a normal, like art kind of school. Oh, well, anyway, I, I, I do believe his art becomes more distinct and idiosyncratic as the series continues. I actually see a lot of Mike Zek influence, um, particularly in how he draws cap with that kind of like super broad shoulders and narrow waist, that triangular look to him. And that's uh, that's well spotted because Zek actually helped Ron Garney break into comics. No fooling. I honestly, I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I I heard this story on the um, the Dollar Bin Bandits podcast. Check them out uh, for interviews and stuff. Um, they had yeah, they had Garney on, and he said that like he had read comics as a kid, right? And then he sort of you know fell out of it as he got older. But then he was like tending bar or something in college. And he saw somebody had a Secret Wars comic, right? And he's like, oh, I used to read, you know, comics. And like, oh, this is neat. And then somebody told him like, oh, by the way, you know that Mike Zek just like lives in your town, right? Like he lives wow. like 10 minutes away or something. And like, so like a total coincidence that like he was reading Secret Wars and was thinking like, I should get into <laughs> comics. And then Mike Zek like literally lives 10 minutes away or, or whatever. So Wow. 
Yeah. Cool. World's a small place. Yeah, it's yeah. It's. But yeah, uh, Garney's action choreography is really nice in this arc. Wade says something that like when I took the assignment, I wanted to do Tom Clancy, but thanks to Garney, it became something more like Jackie Chan. You know, and I think that the action sequences are not totally unlike David Mazzuchelli on Batman Year One that we were talking we were talking about, where he's good at implying motion without necessarily throwing a million speed lines on the page or something. Mm. Like takes takes the picture at the right spot where like somebody's in midair, but you get the full range of implied motion. Yeah, uh, where they're going. I also really love the the big Batman the animated series style chin on cap like it's you know it's, it's about six inches wide at times it's yeah you know that, that that kind of anatomy where like your heroes are made out of these big blocky shapes you know that's very like that just that's always just appealed to me you know for for whatever reason well speaking of chins per stan lee cap is supposed to have a dimple on his chin there is no dimple here uh that is an epic failure Ooh, we could just we could, we could correct that in the in the reproductions right just, I'm just gonna start drawing them in, yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, I, I will say, if I do have a quibble about the art, this arc takes place in Wisconsin. Implicitly, the uh, the first compound that they break into is said to be 70 miles west of Green Bay, and the second one is upstate. But if you actually look at like the terrain that's being drawn here, it's very broad, flat plains with um, mountains in the background. Like it, it looks like the like it's the American Southwest and not the rolling hills of beautiful Northern Wisconsin. <laughs> so um, I've, I've changed my mind. This, this comic is garbage. Um, <laughs> the rest of the, the rest of this episode actually is just going to be about flash Gordon and stuff. <laughs> yes. Okay. I'm in. <laughs> no, there is, uh, okay. of, of course, there is a, a direct line in the flash Gordon novelization of the film, which I have read. Obviously there is a line <laughs> where flash talks about and, getting advice from his friend, Steve Rogers. Really? Really? <laughs> wow. So, yeah. Well, and because Steve Rogers is not a trademark name like Captain America, you can use that without and imply that he knows Captain America without actually saying he knows Captain America. Ooh, we got to, we got to, okay, we got to read this. Uh, Flash Gordon doesn't come out in the Iron Age. <laughs> um... But I'm just saying it. Tie, it's still we're we're not inserting Flash. It's part of the the grand tapestry. <laughs> it ties in directly to what our topic of discussion today. Uh, but yeah. So like all all jokes aside, we are we are gonna I'm gonna steer steer us away from the Lorenzo Semple Jr. written masterpiece <laughs> back into <laughs> back into this. Um, yeah. There's a lot of great action shots of Cap in here. A lot of them you can just sort of almost pull out for like a t-shirt design or something, but they feel integrated into the storytelling rather than just being like a cool image. Like, you know, some artists will, they, you know, you want to sell resell your original art. And so if you have a cool action pose, that's going to be worth more. And sometimes though you can tell when that's being done just to sort of boost up the price and it doesn't really fit in. But like everything in here is such like a cool iconic shot of Captain America, but it also makes complete sense and it feels integrated into the storytelling. Um, you know, like this, like this is showing and not telling yeah. that Captain America is cool, right? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of Kirby-like explosive action with Cap hurtling bodily into crowds of goons. It looks great. It really it is. <laughs> it looks awesome. Yeah. 
And when, you know, when I was reading wizard, I feel like 90% of the time that they needed clip art of cap for a feature or reviews or something, they pulled it from something out of this run. It also had, um, this arc has innovative production for its time. I think like, especially like when I, when I first saw this, right. There's a scene where a cap and the skull in the foreground, see these like big yellow mech suits in the background and the colorist, or I assume it's the colorist has applied some sort of filter to the background so that the mech suits are blurry. Like the, like there's like, like, a, like a camera lens in a, in a film focused on the foreground so that there's an implied depth of field. And like, that's a, that's a pretty basic thing to do with Photoshop or whatever these days. Right. But like this blew my mind the first time that I, like, I don't think that I'd ever seen this layer of using a computer as a tool in a comic book before, like, even a couple of years earlier, you couldn't have done this in a comic book. And, um, the, you know, just the, the technology of the production or the, the paper stock or, or whatever just wasn't there yet. That device is also utilized at the beginning of the story when Cap is in a block of ice. I think the intent is to show that through the ice, Cap is blurred and indistinct. But unfortunately, the end result rather shows blurry ice. <laughs> uh, it looks like they had a new toy and they just kind of wanted to play with it. Um, one thing I thought was was cool was that Garney, it doesn't quite go full Dave Gibbons, but the layouts of the first pages of issues 445 and 448 are the same, although the, the details within those panels are different. In 445, the Red Skull scientists are running the machines needed to bring Captain America back to life. Marrow transplants in a complete and total fluid transfusion, as it's later explained. While in 448, Cap is reliving the moments when Steve Rogers became a super soldier, courtesy of Dr. Erskine. Both scenes are a rebirth of source for Cap, and it was neat to see the same panel arrangements on, on both pages. Yeah, I hadn't spotted that, but that is... That is another good catch. That's really, really cool. It's got the same sound effects and everything. So this was clearly a uh, intentional device there. Yeah, it's like 1990s tech and one and or imaginary tech and one and 1940s tech and the other. But it's pumps and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's really cool. So as the story progresses, Skull eventually traps Captain America inside the cube as well. I find the metaphysical mechanics of this phase of the Skull's master plan a little hard to parse at times. So let me know if you have a, a different interpretation here. But the idea, as I understand it, is that Cap, you know, good old point me at the bad guy, never say die Cap, will defeat Hitler and clear out his influence so that Skull can take over and use the reality warping powers of the cube for his own ends. Yes. So Hitler's mind is within the cosmic cube. The cube doesn't yeah. quite have enough power to do anything major, but the cube cult is charging it up, and soon Hitler will be able to remake reality in his own image, as we've discussed. So then Skull's plan, like I said, it has some layers. It's not mm. that great a plan, <laughs> but still, <laughs> it is a plan. It, his plan is to trick Cap into the device and then wait for the two minds inside it to cancel one another out. Skull rightly assuming the Cap is going to kick Derfira's keister. And when Cap is spent and weakened from all that effort, Skull will take control of the cube and use it to remake reality in his image. Sure. So this plays into the idea that Cap will be so single-mindedly driven to take out Hitler because like, this is what Captain America was born to do. But again, like I think, again, 
any superhero would probably be convinced to fight Hitler. Yeah. But I'm sure if you called up Dark Hawk, <laughs> he wouldn't be like, Hitler, I don't know what's in it for me. But, um, <laughs> so inside the cube, it's generating this sort of fantasy scenario where he is reunited with Bucky, his 1940s sidekick, and it's still the 1940s, and he's tracking down Hitler. He sees his old neighborhood. He meets up with his mom. Um, but there are little hints here and there that something's not right. You know, he'll see somebody with a cell phone. There's some sort of portable music device. Um, someone's singing the Friends theme song. And you have the uh, the existence of the World Trade Center, which, you know, is dates this as past World War II, but now it also dates it to pre-9-11. Uh, right as Cap's about to open the door to Hitler's bunker, Bucky, or whatever part of Steve's mind is projecting Bucky, clues Steve into the trap that he's walking into and tells him to make the hard decision and leave the mission and instead fight back against the Red Skull. So this was during that period when Bucky was definitely dead in a way that most combo characters outside of maybe the Waynes and Uncle Ben simply are not. Like, I mean, Sharon Carter proves in this issue that (laughs) when you're dead, you're not actually dead. But like Bucky was quote unquote dead. And and within the cube world and cap subconscious, Bucky's still a plucky teenager because no one before Ed Brubaker ever conceived the idea that, that Bucky or anyone else might actually age over the course of the four years the United States was involved in the Second World War. So he was a kid in the comics produced during that time. Captain America's title would continue past the war despite the fact that in Marvel continuity – Cap disappeared before the war's end. So I guess all the writers and artists before Brubaker just assumed Bucky was a perennial child. It's, it's kind of weird to think about now, but it was definitely just an accepted part of the continuity, <laughs> yeah. even in the 90s when we were first reading this. And I guess just as an aside, I, I do find it interesting that when Bucky is finally resurrected, it is at the hands of the Red Skull using a cosmic cube <laughs> to rewrite history. So in a way, the Winter Soldier comics do kind of directly tie into this Wade Garney series. Yeah, I can see that. I don't I don't know if I don't know to what degree he was he was thinking about that. Um so yeah, thoughts on the on the the fantasy sequence here, because on the one hand, this is something that you see like a million times in not even just in, in genre comics, but like in literature in general, this idea that like your character is in this idealized fantasy world that's personalized and tailored to you. And there's all these cracks that tip them off that they're, you know, dreaming or in a machine or hallucinating or, or, or whatever it is. It's fairly well done. What with the, the little suggestions that Cap subconscious is fighting back. But like you said, it's something we've seen so many times. And just once I'd like to see the hero who immediately tricks to the lie and rejects it rather than having to fight their way back to themselves. I guess that would be less dramatic, but it would be a welcome reversal of expectations. <laughs> yeah. If Captain America is just like, it's not 1940. I know I have, <laughs> yes. I, I, own, I own a calendar. <laughs> <laughs> no. So yeah, I mean, it is, it is, it is a trope. And I was like, you know, it's a trope that we, that we always enjoy seeing, but, a, a way that I would suggest reading this to be maybe a little more interesting than some of the we've, we've seen a hundred times before is 
this is sort of showing Captain America is over that whole man out of time conceit. You know, that it's not just Cap having an indomitable will that's going to fight against any kind of trap. It's the fact that, like, cell phones start showing up because he's actually just been living in the modern day for, you know, 10 years or whatever Marvel time would have us believe. So, like, he's reasonably acclimated by this point, right? Like, these these things are normal to him and part of his actual life, and he wouldn't live in the past even if he might think that he wants to sometimes, right? Like he's, he's used the Avengers computer. He's yeah. not going to be like, it would be much better if we were using punch cards again. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, he, he, he's a, he's a modern guy now. <laughs> well, I, that's the thing, right? Cause outside of the ultimates, I don't think I've ever seen a version of cap that didn't acclimate well to the present or who wanted to live in the past. Cap is a man out of time because he's forthright and honest, not because he doesn't understand concepts like, oh, I don't know, to pull something out of a hat, NASCAR or MySpace. <laughs> Those are weird examples to go for. I wonder what you <laughs> Yes. Uh, take that. Paul Jenkins. Paul Jenkins. <laughs> Paul Jenkins. Yeah. You burnt. Uh, <laughs> I showed him, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> High five. Yeah. Published uh, author. Yeah. How, how dare you? <laughs> Got told off by two dudes on the internet. Excellent. Yeah. So we were talking about the Skull's motivation, right? And how he's mostly just, you know, bad guy who inevitably double crosses you. Fair, right? But (laughs) he does get an interesting moment in here where the the cube cultists find him. They berate him. They call him a traitor. They, you know, throw him against the wall. They're going to shoot him. They're going to execute him. And this scene gets you a cool action rescue shot of Cap using his shield and deflecting the bullets and saving the the Skull's life. But I'm actually sort of interested in what this says about the Red Skull as a character, who's not a character that we care to peer into the the soul of very often. Because, like, he's not actually one of these neo-Nazi guys, right? Like, the neo-Nazi guys don't like him and and he doesn't really like them. Like, he's sort of moved on from World War II in a way. Like, I mean, like the Red Skull is a power-hungry guy, right? And implicitly a fascist. But at this time in the 90s, I feel like he's not being portrayed as being, and I want to I be careful here, strictly like an ideological Nazi, if you know what I mean. Mm, I don't know. I think this is basic Night of the Long Knives stuff. Red Skull has betrayed Hitler, but not Nazi ideology. There's another Wade Penn Captain America comic that came out after Heroes Are Born, where Skull's origin is covered, and it's grim stuff. Mm-hmm. But I'm also thinking about how, in Greenwald's run, right, he sort of embraces 80s big business. You know, like, he's not wearing his, like, green jumpsuit with the swastika <laughs> on anymore. He's wearing, like, power suits, and he's sitting behind a desk. He's running his evil organization like it's a corporation. So, like, if the Nazis took over the world in this arc, the Skull would also kind of be a man out of time. I don't think that we're supposed to believe that the Red Skull believes in anything except the Red Skull. And maybe that's why he's running Hydra as a national socialism adjacent organization in the Captain America movie. I think in recent years, and and particularly like, I know Spielberg decided not to use Nazis in his movies as villains, um, even though they're they were obviously used to great effect in the Indiana Jones movies. He decided not to use them again after doing Schindler's List. And I think there has been more of a, a shift 
away from them as stock villains because the evil that they represent is all too real in a way that Thanos or Doctor Doom or Lex Luthor are not real. Um, so that seeing them portrayed in a funny book might be seen as trivializing um, genuine right. horror. Um, mm-hmm. So I can see perhaps distancing Red Skull from that just to maintain him as a viable character. And perhaps that's why Disney, or I guess maybe it was still Marvel Studios at that point, um, decided to portray the Red Skulls as being in charge of Hydra and not really a, like you say, ideological Nazi. I don't know. All right. On a lighter note, here's the thing. (laughs) In the scene where the cube cultists manhandle Skull and prepare to execute him, he literally spits in defiance. Now... Given that he has no lips, <laughs> how does he accomplish this? Imagine for the purposes of this scenario that a no prize is on the line here. You can totally do that. You, <laughs> you isn't this, isn't this what how baseball players do? How they 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 spit is like they you like have. I'm gonna be gross here, right? We're going from ideologically gross from discussion of Nazis to <laughs> physically gross to a discussion. I think what you do is you put like a of well of spit in your <laughs> mouth and then you would push with your tongue through the teeth. And that's, that's all I'm going to say for, for my, for my note prize, that, um, <laughs> the original editor of this book can send me, I think that he's shooting it through his teeth with his tongue. All right. I, all right. <laughs> fair enough. I just thought it was really kind of goofy. No, I, I, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a whole thing of the red skull of like, how does he, Pronounce I must M. talk like this. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, Steve Rogers. <laughs> I will destroy you. <laughs> but with a German accent. German accent, yeah. So wrapping up the story, Cap wills himself free of the cube without confronting Hitler. And this is also a bit metaphysically vague, but like it just happens. He's, he's free. Sheer force of will, whatever you want to call it. He confronts the skull, and there's a striking splash page where Cap is holding the edge of his shield to the skull's throat. And he says, tell me there's a way I won't kill you. The skull gets up from under him and reaches for the cube. Cap throws his shield at him and it cuts off his hand. And then the shield smashes the cube, causing it to explode and seemingly destroy the red skull. Crisis over. This is a surprisingly aggressive Cap, almost violent, like almost violent. You know what? Violent. He's, he's cutting, he's cutting off a limb. (laughs) Tumor not taking his place. Uh, even if, you know, his threat to kill the skull is just sort of a heat of the moment thing and not something that we really expect him to, to follow through on, that's a side of Captain America that we don't see much prior to this, I think, in the comics. And there's that very pragmatic step of, if the skull is going to reach for the cube, that's game over, so I'm just going to lop off the hand if that's what it takes. What do you make of this? I just want to point out, it's not just his hand that gets severed. There's a goodly portion of his arm that goes with it. It's all yeah. tastefully done in shadows, of course, and there's very little blood. And immediately afterwards, Skull is, is vaporized, never to be seen again, I'm sure. Never. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like this is sort of a statement of intent because it is 1995. <laughs> a little more violent. That's like I think the envelope has been sufficiently pushed where there's more that's acceptable 
And again, between like Wade's retro reputation and Captain America's reputation as the sort of goody two shoes hero, I think this is a way of like reflecting the times without totally remaking Captain as something that he's not. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's a famous to me anyway. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's famous to anyone else. Issue in Gruenwald's run where Cap has to kill a terrorist because he doesn't have any other weapons available to him. He just has a gun right. in his hand. So I, I I do think that Cap is willing to kill under the right circumstances, just not in cold blood. So like when he has Skull pinned and he makes that threat, he's he's not going to just execute him. I think in the heat of battle, he would use lethal force if he thought it was necessary. Um, during that stern burn run, uh, that classic stern burn run, Cap chopped off Baron Blood's head with his shield. But of course, Baron Blood is a vampire. <laughs> so there's a certain leeway, like in those kinds of situations that I think, you know, Nazis fall probably under that, <laughs> that umbrella too. <laughs> but um, yeah, Red Skull's a horrible pain in the butt and a Nazi and Captain America <laughs> was made to kill Nazis. So why not just kill Red Skull? But in, it's a classic comic book ambiguous death involving a cosmic cube. So obviously it's not going to stick, but yeah, it's, it's pretty dramatic in the moment. Yeah, and like like even Captain America is like, if the skull survived, that's a problem for another day. So he's like, he's he, there's like at the end of the story, there's like a shadow, kind of like a Hiroshima shadow of the Red Skull, like on the wall, and he's like, well, that seems pretty dead, but like, it's the Red Skull, it's a cosmic. Cube, <laughs> well, I'll, I'm probably gonna see him again in you know, twelve months to to eighteen. So. <laughs> Sort of talking about Captain America's portrayal in general, like how Wade characterizes him. In this arc, he's very straightforward and guileless. He's not macho, I don't think, by like that kind of, you know, steroidal 1990s action hero kind of thing. Mm. But he's also not making like flowery speeches. Which, honestly, Cap is a guy who makes speeches. That's one of his hallmarks. That's one of his superpowers. I mean, they're usually inspiring speeches, to be sure, and they're always honest and from the heart, so that still keeps with the straightforward guileless thing. But he is an orator. I, you know, you'd expect him to, to lay some some spoken word track on the Red <laughs> Skull um, about, you know, the true meaning of the American spirit or whatever in the face of unbridled fascist warmongering or something, and, and then for Sharon to go, gosh, he's swell. But yeah, it, it doesn't happen. So but yeah, I guess that is a, a difference in Wade's characterization of Cap. So following Operation Rebirth in issue 449 is a tie-in to an Avengers crossover called First Sign. I don't actually have this issue. I will probably get it one day so that I will have a Wade Garney issue that I've never read, I guess. <laughs> but, you know, there's, and I know there's at least one collected edition that actually skips this issue entirely because... You don't want to deal with that, I guess. Right. <laughs> like we can just we can just leave this one out and we'll we'll pretend that it didn't happen. Um Wade and Garney's real follow-up is an arc called Man Without a Country. The high concept there is that Cap is framed for treason and forced not just to give up his Cap identity, which he has done in, in the past on occasions, including in Grunewald's run, mm -hmm. but he actually gets exiled from the US. And so it's basically, you know, rogue Captain America has to clear his name. Did you uh, ever read that one? No, I have not. Trade 
publication was much more haphazard in the 90s than it is now, and I'm not sure that story was collected at the time. If it had been, I most likely would have picked it up. Is this the fallout from Cap punching that five-star general in this story? I mean, it gets brought up as damning evidence because also the fact that like we have video of Cap and the Red Skull being buddies breaking into <laughs> yeah. breaking into army base in Wisconsin, which is something that you do. But um, it's actually this like unrelated thing involving a leak of classified information and the machine smith and hmm. all that. It's 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 a good arc. Okay, but there was a part of me that was a little disappointed that Cap just got back into his classic status quo here, and then. He loses the Captain America suit, right? Because he's he's stripped of all his privileges and stuff. So like he's in sort of like a a makeshift dark blue costume, and I'm like, we just got the real Cap back in his <sighs> wait in his real suit. I, Does he wear a, a hooded sweatshirt? Unfortunately, no. It's more like a bandana <laughs> with eye holes cut in it, like a Zorro thing. Oh no! I know, I know, I know. We're thinking, what if he's the Captain America version of Scarlet Spider? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. That would be cool. <laughs> what is? <laughs> <laughs> sadly, sadly not to be okay yeah um so something, something i just want to say one more thing about this this arc something amusing in there is that cap is confronted with his supposed crimes by the president and it's 1995 or 1996 so it's bill clinton oh god <laughs> and he's not and he's not well that's the thing is that he's not really written to be a particular individual right he he's just sort of like generic president with the theoretical dignity and gravitas of the office. So like that, the dialogue that he says could be said by, you know, the George Bush on either side or Bob Dole, if he'd won or a fictional president, or, you know, his face is always behind, you know, the flag or something. So you don't, you don't see it, but Ron Garney clearly draws him as Bill Clinton. And as a result, this is, I, I, I mean this, this is perhaps the single most respectful fictional portrayal of bill clinton ever <laughs> it's wild well. <laughs> it's just like what what if what if he was what if we made no jokes about bill clinton what if he was just <laughs> the president <laughs> wow that's, that's, wow i mean you know and and bill also has a, a um a cameo in um in issue 445 he's he's drawn as a pallbearer for cap's memorial service when he's presumed dead um and other pallbearers being Ben Grimm, Quicksilver, Black Widow, and uh, Cyclops. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. There's, yeah, there's, there's a there's a guy with long hair and sunglasses on on the the far right of the panel, and I, I think it might be the Jack Monroe Nomad because his because uh, the, the guy's hair is too long to be Cyclops. Yeah, uh, I put this out. I put this out t- to Twitter. And someone suggested Rick Jones because oh. he had long hair at the time. Mm. So, yeah, it feels like Falcon or Hawkeye should be there, but I don't know where they're at it in the horrible 1995 continuity. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I think Nomad's a good guess. Um, the red sunglasses suggested Cyclops or Daredevil to me, but neither made right. sense or had such a luxurious mane of hair at the time. So, yeah, I, I really want to know at all times who was the pallbearer in a superhero's funeral. Yeah. Well, just because he looks so much like another character, like I really thought it was Cyclops at first, which, which just puzzled <laughs> me so much. Right. Like the, 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 the X-Men figure, they got to send somebody. Yeah. Like uh, we're the most popular ones. We've got to show up. It should be Wolverine, but he's got like three other books. This month, 
he's he's too short too. He wouldn't be able to hold <laughs> up in the same level that yeah. he's not as tall as Black Widow. <laughs> right. So this run comes out during a time of decline across the entire comics industry. 1995 was the year that the bottom dropped out on the speculator market and we got the bust. But sales actually went up on Captain America. Wade and Garney really clicked as a team. Like they did interviews together and they seemed to be true collaborators and not just, you know, draw what I tell you to art monkey. <laughs> but Wade talks about like what he likes to do with a lot of his collaborators to ask them like, well, what kind of things do you like to draw? What kind of stories do you like to draw? And it seemed like they were settling in for a good long run. But here's the catch. The deal for Heroes Reborn was already in place when they got the job, which would give Rob Liefeld creative control over a rebooted Captain America title. And when Wade and Garney were brought on, nobody at Marvel told them that their run would just be a temporary stopgap. They were, they, they, apparently they actually just found out like in the fan press, like we all did. Oh my God. But like, <laughs> or it was, it was it, it, not the way that you want to be told this, which is, let's be honest. You don't want to be told this at all. Yeah. Right? But I think you want to have this broken to you and not, Hey, Rob Liefeld's doing Captain America. Um, so it, it's not great, you know, and, and like Wade and Garney have said that they were unhappy about this, obviously, but they seem to be gracious even when they talk about it today which they don't have to necessarily be nice today, right? Because you could say whatever you want. But they said that like, oh, you know, we it's a business decision, right? And Rob Liefeld makes a certain amount of sense as a business decision in 1995 or 1996. <laughs> they, just, they just wish that like Marvel had been upfront about like, hey, this is going to be a couple of issues and not, you know, don't, don't make any long-term plans. Don't, you yeah. know. Don't buy any carpeting. What a way to run a business. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so Heroes Reborn is something that we've touched on a bit before, and I'm not saying that we'll never cover this. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> it's on the spreadsheet. Yeah. It's very okay, fair. <laughs> yeah, but but it's but you know, but it's not something that like you or I are particularly champing at the bit to dig into. So I'll just ask this here because you know, if we've been talking about Flash Gordon, we, we, we clearly have time for other things <laughs> as well. <laughs> Fair. Have, have you ever read Liefeld's Captain America? I'm not just going to say no. I'm going to say hell no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't read it either. So for all I know, it's it's wonderful, I'm sure. But I will say that I actually kind of liked the Jim Lee Fantastic Four. Because the first six issues of that are sort of um, like the movie version of Fantastic Four in a way, but it's just like super compressed. Like in six issues, you get the origin, you get the Mole Man, you get Namor, Nick Fury, S.H.I.E.L.D., Black Panther, Super Scroll, Doctor Doom, Silver Surfer, Wyatt Wingfoot, um, Alicia Masters. So like all of that in, like that's tighter even than like Liam Kirby did, right? So like, it's not like, it's not like a replacement. Like I said, when they make the movie version of this, and the, I'm sure the MCU will take no cues from this whatsoever. Yeah. But I think you could, I think you could do worse than to look at those and go like, well, it might be a good starting point. But I I I'll take your word for it. I, I honestly I steered clear <laughs> completely of the whole publicity stunt. I avoided all four Heroes Reborn titles like they were pox ridden plague vectors. <laughs> so uh, Liefeld actually invited Mark Wade. Or maybe Marvel asked Liefeld. Somebody, something happened in this behind the scenes thing. Where <laughs> somebody asked Mark Wade, "Would you be willing to write the book?" And by write the book, it's not contribute plots and work with that. It's 
Lifehub will plot this and give you the pages and you can dialogue over it in the, in the Marvel method. Right. And Wade said, and again, he's, he, he's gracious in an interview that I, I listened to that, like, this isn't a condemnation of what he was doing, just a totally different way of how they saw the book. And he, um, graciously declined the, the offer. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, Liefeld and Loeb would only last six issues on Captain America and Liefeld would only last six issues on the Avengers as well that he you don't got say. the stewardship too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, his contract was not renewed, let us say, with Marvel citing low sales. But I, I do want to stress, because it's easy to make jokes, the books were apparently not actually bombs. Like sometimes this gets repeated as like, oh yeah, Liefeld's books were totally, you know, a, a mess or whatever. Um, according to Marvel editor Tom Brevert, who should know, Liefeld's Avengers number one was apparently the highest selling ish, uh, single issue ever of Avengers. What? Possibly before or since. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, again, this was a business decision. People wanted to read well, for their sins. Publicity stunt. It was get eyeballs on this thing and mm-hmm. and shunt them off to a different universe so they can do whatever they want and we can still have the original characters back when it's over. So, yeah, I guess I could see that. It just, everybody wants to check out the train wreck in some instances mm-hmm. and the other was like, oh, Jim Lee might have a good idea. <laughs> but uh, whatever the reason, sales eventually began to taper off as that those first six issues ran. And uh, I think it was still higher than it was before, but I don't think that it was worth what they were paying Rob Liefeld for at that point, especially with the impending bankruptcy coming on. I don't know exactly when that hit, but you know, I, th- I think there was a sign that like, maybe we should be spending money on not this guy. <laughs> you know, cause like, I mean, cause like 1990s Rob Liefeld, right. He's not great with deadlines. No. Let's say. He's not good at seeing projects through. Um, there's a lot of bad press as well because Wizard was really hammering them on like, hey, Marvel, you need to get Wade and Garney back. This is a total travesty. So like, as you know, we've talked about Wizard being on Crusades in our uh, episode on Wizard, but sometimes like I did actually agree with those Crusades from time to time. Um, stop clock or, or whatever you want to call it, but I am more charitable to Wizard than that. Um so yeah, Jim Lee finished up the remainder of the Heroes Reborn run, paving the way for Captain America and the Avengers and the Fantastic Four to return to the Marvel Universe proper for Heroes Return. And we got a happy ending because Wade and Garney are reunited on Cap again for um for about like five issues. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then stuff happens. So like, yeah, the creative team changes. That will be a story for another time. And I hope that we will hey. pick up with volume... Um, their second run, which is actually Captain America Volume Three, but right, yeah. Um, overall thoughts on Operation Rebirth and Wade and Garney's Cap in general. Well, okay. So, what is the deal with the Cube Cult? They seem only half baked. <laughs> Literally a bunch of goons, not a, a single one with a name or personality. Now, obviously, Red Skull is the villain of this story. But at least initially, it's set up as Cap having to work with Red Skull to defeat a greater evil. But that greater evil never really manifests. Each issue is essentially Cap, Sharon, and Red Skull bursting in on some cube cult dudes. Cap beats them up. Red Skull tries to steal the cube. Sharon does something shady. There's enough variation within that formula to remain entertaining, 
but this is really just a story about Cap and Skull vying against one another. The Cube Cult is just as much a MacGuffin as the Cube itself. Now, what did mm. you think of the the stylized swastikas on their uniforms? It made me wonder if they were drawn that way to be able to sell these comics in Germany. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I sort of took that as part of the notion that, you know, the the traditional Nazis are old-fashioned. So, like, these aren't stock 1940s villains. These are stock 1990s villains. <laughs> they have a... They have a, a radical extreme new swastika and kind of like a iron fist dragon thing. So it's, <laughs> yeah, the cube cult doesn't come to much. And maybe that's the point that they're stuck in the past and you got to watch out for whatever modern devilry that this Red Skull is going to get up to. So, okay, another thing. At the start of this, Cap was dying. But Red Skull just teleports a team into Avengers headquarters, which... No one notices and isn't that terrifying. And then donates marrow and plasma to bring Cap back to spec. Now, I realize there's a hand-waved month between Cap's disappearance and his revival, but given that he had only one donor for his recuperation, how is Red Skull up and walking around himself? I, um... You are... Li- listener. <laughs> I, I, I have already given one no prize explanation <laughs> for, for the important plot point of how the red skull can spit. If you would like to explain <laughs> how the red skull is walking around, that's a, again, that's a, that's a extreme ice box. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Problem it's just... there. No, I, I, I was, I was thinking about that, that myself going back to this is like, well, <laughs> not sure. What's he, does he have no super soldier? He must anyway. Yeah. So part of the reason that this arc, right, hits so big at the time is because this is a breath of fresh air for a character that people had stopped paying attention to in the 90s, maybe. And this isn't, you know, we're, we're talking about Mark Wade being more complicated than just Mr. Silver Age. This isn't like a brightly colored retro romp. You know, it's, you know, in, in the coloring, at least, it's as dark as anything that's coming out of the time. The covers use a lot of black backgrounds that look very, like, stately almost. It was a part of what caught my eye in the first place. But Cap himself is, you know, red, white, and blue. Mm-hmm. He's an earnest patriot in the middle of the X-Files 90s when, back when conspiracy theories were still fun. <laughs> Remember when he... But yeah, writers like Wade would push superhero comics back into a more optimistic sphere as the 90s wore on. And now I feel like if you read Operation Rebirth in a vacuum without everything else around it, you know, like Ghost Rider and Punisher. <laughs> I, f- you know, I, I feel like if you're not like cognizant of like how this is a different direction for, for comics, it's, you know, it's, it's a good pacey action movie of a comic book, but not obviously a game changer the way that it sort of reverberated through uh, Marvel at the time. I think that's certainly how it reads now. It's quick moving and action packed. I really don't stop to think about all the holes in the plot until much later. But it's got a great confrontation between Captain America and his archest of foes, the Red Skull. It's an entertaining romp. It still manages to do that thing that so many Cap stories do, show off how Cap is still relevant in this day and age, even if that particular day and age was the the mid-1990s. Yeah, I mean, it does have pretty much everything you want in a Captain America story, right? It's just not maybe to somebody who's coming to it fresh might not seem like, well, what is the, 
what is the big deal about this one? This is just a really, this is a good one, but not uh, revolutionary maybe. Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, I've, I've said that this was a big run for me at the time, right? Because I was there in the nineties, but you know, going back to it with a more critical eye, it's, you know, it's not flawless, right? There are some shaky justifications and motivations. Some of the actual mechanics of what's going on aren't, aren't exactly clear all the time. It's very fast paced, but in a way that's sometimes like, you know, an explosion happens. Now what? That's, <laughs> and that's straight out of the Kirby school of comic crafting. Well, Sure. But that's kind of a function of the Iron Age period that we're talking about is that like superhero stuff starts to become more plausible or rational or whatever you want to call, if not exactly realistic. But the downside is that now it's actually possible to question the logic of this stuff in a way that it maybe wasn't before. Because like that, the total blood transfusion thing, right? Like if that had come up in a Lee Kirby story or in a Silver Age Flash issue, you would hardly bat an eye. It would almost be missing the point to nitpick. But I think that there's enough attempt at trying to make this story make logical sense that you can go, well, how did they get enough blood from one donor? Like, how did they get into Avengers Mansion? Who are the lab guys working for? Like, who do they, <laughs> what do they think that they're doing? I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure. Well, you know, I don't know that we don't nitpick Silver Age stories. I, I think we're just a little more generous with them because they're clearly written for children. But by the Iron Age we've talked about, comics are exclusively pitched at adults. And I think adults expect at least a nod at verisimilitude here and there, even in a story that has a literal wish-granting genie at the heart of it. Genies are silly. This is a box. <laughs> right. This is, <laughs> this is a cube. It's a, it's cosmic. See, it's not this, magic. This is science. It's this cosmic. Science. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so I can't help but wonder if the story in this run would be as well remembered if it didn't have that sort of cut down in his prime legend, you know? Um, I actually like Wade and Garney and then Wade and Kubert's a second run better than this one. Well, I think sandwiched between the lackluster end of Grunewald's run and the bizarre Liefeld Heroes Reborn experiment, Wade and Garney can only shine in comparison. If they'd been allowed to keep going, it might have been even better. But because, mm -hmm. yeah, like you said, because they were cut down, because they were sidelined, we'll never know. Or, I mean, they could have crashed and burned, too. <laughs> right. Well... I guess it was nice spending time in the Marvel Universe for the last two episodes, but there's so much more going on in the Iron Age besides what the big two were doing. Next time, we're going to look at a small independent comic book that became the heart of a multi-million dollar franchise, spawning Saturday morning cartoons, toy lines, a legendarily difficult video game, and several live action and animated feature films. But we're going to cheat a little bit and not cover any of the most popular color-coded versions of these characters it will step slightly outside the iron age proper to look at the first few issues of kevin eastman and peter laird's teenage mutant ninja turtles all right well until then you can follow us on twitter and instagram at at iron age of comics email us at iron age comics podcast at gmail.com with suggestions with feedback we'd like to hear from people uh, we are releasing new episodes the first and third Wednesdays of the month, so subscribe or follow on your podcasting app of choice. Please consider rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a five-star review. 
and we will read that out on air. And consider sharing our show with the comics reading people in your life. But as always, thanks for listening. And for the Iron Age of Comics, I have been Justin Zyduck. I've been Jim Cannon. See you in the stacks. (laughs) 